Hi, I'm James Allison, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hello, everyone. Tom Clarkson here, and welcome once again to Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35-2 wireless headphones. This week, I'm speaking to one of the most thoughtful and articulate people in F1. During his 30-year career as an engineer, he's worked for most of the big guns in the pit lane, including Ferrari, Renault, and of late, Mercedes. I'm talking about the Silver Arrows technical director, James Allison. Now, you won't find a more modest man in the pit lane. James doesn't like to be singled out from the team around him, but that's what we're going to do in this episode. With a record-breaking 4-1-2s to start the 2019 season, Mercedes have raised the bar once again, both technically and operationally, and James should take much of the credit for that, even if he'd always immediately deflect it back to those around him. We caught up at Mercedes HQ in Brackley, where we had the chance to spend a good hour face-to-face. I can safely say that he didn't disappoint, so get ready for some fascinating insights into the winning machine that is the modern Silver Arrows, along with some cracking anecdotes about Lewis Hamilton, Valtteri Bottas, and more. Well, James, welcome to Beyond the Grid. It's lovely to have you on the show, and what a Fantastic time to be here in Brackley, just after the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. There's a buzz about this place. You guys are going quite well this year. We are going quite well, but you might not believe it, but within like an hour or two of winning a race, you start worrying about the next one. So the happiness is there bubbling away in the background, but mostly it's just just anxiety does and, it, uh, and excitement too but uh, tell but, us what happens after a race when does it bubble away in the foreground i mean do you guys come here does the champagne flow on a monday after a victory uh well you there's the you really can tell when you walk in you, you you could not watch the weekend you could come in the factory and know whether we had done well or not because the mood of the of the building is is palpable um, so you can you can for sure say when we've had a good one, and and people will will be full of smiles and uh, and keen keen to meet your eye, and you know the just there's just a an energy to the place. In terms of formal things that we do when we win, we do give everyone a glass of champagne during the debrief that we have in front of the whole staff uh, during the day but there isn't sort of riotous celebration or anything. Now, look, one of my take-home things from the, the Baku Grand Prix was that first corner between Valtteri and Lewis. And I think it does beg the question, are you nervous that the good vibes between those two, if they are, if it does become a championship fight between them, could it get a bit edgy? Well, you I'm know? certainly incredibly nervous that as they jostle for position uh, on the track where necessarily they get very very close to one another you're very nervous that neither of them is making a a misjudgment that might lead to them touching and then you know the disaster that follows from that but we're all very conscious that a, a huge asset for this team over the last couple of seasons and over the beginning of this one has been the relationship between our two drivers they know it uh, we know it, and all of us would like that to stay the way it is. But we also know that the dynamic between drivers and the team is a fragile thing and needs nurturing. So I think the whole team is very conscious of the need to, to preserve that, including the drivers themselves, because they know it works for everybody. Okay, and looking at the bigger picture, 
four one-twos, consecutive one-twos this year. How do you guys continue to raise the bar? Well, that's not a one-word answer. There's a thousand people here just at Brackley and there's you know a very large operation down the road in Bricksworth as well, covering the broadest range of disciplines. And all of this team has been been enjoying a period of near un, unprecedented success in the sport. That success is certainly not an accident, but it isn't down to one thing. It's down to just hundreds and hundreds and thousands of, of things that all add up to the competence that you see on the track. But we have had a few things that, that have been strongly in our favor. We've got a brilliant driver lineup. We have uh, an extremely good level of, of budget from from all our partners um, and uh, and from our owners. Um, we have a sort of maturity in the team that's had a degree of, uh, of stability that is extremely unusual. Normally a team that has been as successful as this gets, gets systematically picked apart by, by our competitors who want to both have good people and also disrupt the team in the process. We've, we've enjoyed stability for a long, a long period of the core part of the team. And perhaps above all else, the team has really, really cared about not being complacent and about being having humility. <laughs> these, these sound very soft in, in a world of F1, which is quite a sort of bustling, hard-edged world sometimes. The softness of, of saying we, are, we have humility, we're, we're not going to get complacent, is such a weapon. If, if you can really live that out rather than just say the words, then, then it means that it's true that, that a few hours after, after a glorious one-two in Baku, you start worrying about the next one and start thinking, well, you know, we were, we're a bit fortunate this weekend in some regards. It was a lovely, lovely end result, but let's remember there's been four races. Only two of those races were we really strong. The other two, one we should have taken a pasting, in Baku we could easily have been beaten, and we're about to go to Spain where we got an absolute roosting in, in winter testing. So that humility is in the bones of, of the place and it, it's, it's a very, very strong asset. And it comes from the top, from people like you, Toto? It, well, fortunately, it, it's, it's embedded across the company, but it is, it is certainly led from the front by Toto. And there is a critical mass of people who who really truly believe it, that that allows the the whole organisation to be imbued with that spirit. And how much designing do you do now as the technical boss? Or are you purely managing people? I do precisely none. <laughs> and, and in fact, it's one of the things that makes me so uncomfortable when people talk about, um, you know, this is your last year, it was my first full year in the team. This is the first Alison car. And you just cringe internally because... Because although the sport puts personalities, they put a face to a team and by through that face, people can sort of talk about a team. The truth is that each individual plays the smallest, smallest role in a thing like this. And I just said to you, I do no designing, none. I, I hope I play a part in the team that is, is you know, worth my salt, but... The, the idea that a single person is the architect of a car is just 
around nonsense. So, so on a serious note, do you bounce from meeting to meeting trying to steer the different departments? Not quite, no. I I I do bounce from meeting to meeting. Uh, the the probably half to two-thirds of my working life is attending meetings. And the, to, to in some of those meetings, they are key decision-making meetings where the people in that meeting are trying to set up some of the strategic things that will sort of set out our stall for the coming races and the coming seasons. And in that, I clearly have a voice, but I'm one voice amongst many experienced engineers and uh, only when when there is just n- no obvious direction emerging that we can coalesce around, am I, do I actually end up having to say, look, okay, enough, we're going to do this. But luckily in a team like this, with the, the quality and quantity of, of people in it that, that have been doing it a while, have good judgment and, uh, and are not ego-driven, most of the time that that's uh, these decisions make themselves and all that is necessary is that we all just we all just put our shoulders to the wheel and how different is all that compared to i don't know when you're at larousse head of aero at larousse what 93 1993 94 i mean like how many people you said there are a thousand people here at brackley how many people were in the whole of the larousse formula one team um 25 years ago well, it was it was the, the LaRousse Formula One team was divided into two parts. There was a, a race team and then there was a technical office. And the, the race team was a French racing team uh, owned and run by Gerard LaRousse. And he commissioned the manufacture and design of the car to uh, a small office of engineers in Bista, who were LaRousse UK. And I think there were about... Hmm, hard to remember the precise numbers but maybe 15 of us something like that, <laughs> that if you include the receptionist the yeah. and the aero department was <laughs> me <laughs> and and two model makers and we were of course truly appalling because because you can't be anything other than that with with so few people but equally truly remarkable to make a formula one car that would actually sometimes finish a race occasionally steal a point when there were points only down to sixth place with with so little was was a herculean achievement and a and a, and a great enjoyable blast to to be doing that in age your, 25 in, or whatever you yeah, were at the time yeah, 24 25 and yeah. uh, and and just living the dream it was great we say living the dream i mean James, why, I mean, let's just wind the clock back a little bit. Why, why Formula One for you? Because, tell me if I'm wrong, but looking at, reading a few things about you, there's no motor racing history in your family. It's much more aeroplanes. There's, there's no motor racing, there's, but there's lots of machinery in my family and, and a love for things that mankind makes and uses. And my dad was a fighter pilot in the Air Force and liked old cars and bought me up helping him to mend the things that he couldn't really afford to own uh, and used to break quite a lot that we used to go flying in. What, <laughs> just what, what did your dad fly? You say he was a fighter pilot. Uh, he, well, when I was born, he was on lightnings. Then I guess for the majority of the bits I remember as a boy, he was on phantoms. And then uh, after I left home, he moved on to tornadoes. So, yeah. And was that the first love for you, was aeroplanes? Uh, if so, I said to you age 13, what do you want to be when you grow up? 
you would have said? I would have said, I would like to be a fighter pilot like my dad. <laughs> but I would have also said, but I'm colorblind, but I'm hoping to cheat my way through the tests if, if I knew you really well. Um, <laughs> and uh, well, When did you find out you were colorblind? Oh, pretty early on when I was 10 or 11. Because there is a story I'm, a, I'm aware of, of you trying to, as you say, cheat your way through the Ishihara test, right? Yeah. Um, so for people who don't know what an Ishihara test is, it's these tests where there's lots of coloured dots and you try to say what number is is on the coloured dots. And if you're colourblind, you just can't see it. Um, but what you can see if you've got a certain type of colorblindness is you can see a number they're trying to spoof you into saying. So typically they will make a pattern that to a colorblind person looks like a seven, let's say, but actually it's a three. And if you look at the top of a number seven, it's got the same shape as a number three. But then once it gets sort of halfway down, sevens and threes start looking different. And uh, for the colorblind person, they will trace a pattern that only a colorblind person can see that makes it scream seven at you. And for a non-colorblind person, it's blindingly obvious that it's a three. So if I saw a seven, I'd say, oh, three, and vice versa. And, um, and that, that, <laughs> how, how far do you get? Well, that, that trick can work, but there is a sort of moment of computation, and some of them are not as cleanly and clearly translatable as the seven, three example. But there is a moment of sort of thinking about it before you say it. And even though the test, you're supposed to get five seconds and it's supposed to be done in good light, the test is more of a screening process than a definitive test. And annoyingly, the doctor could see I was doing too much thinking. And so he gave me the definitive test, which I, which I failed magnificently. <laughs> and, uh, and so I wasn't allowed to be um, what I'd hoped I could be. And how much of a setback was that? Well, it was pretty crushing at the time because because that's what I thought I'd want to be. When I look back on it now, I think it was the most awesome blessing because I think that the life that I have subsequently been granted to have was just infinitely more diverse, enjoyable and challenging. And that's not to denigrate the, the life of a RAF fighter pilot, which is exciting and challenging and awesome. I saw my dad do it and and there's, I think there's huge things to recommend it. But I've been very, very lucky in, in what I've done and have had, have had the best time doing it. Was it quite a nomadic childhood? Were you, was dad posted all over the world? Or, and uh, did you have to follow him? Or? He was. So we had periods in America, uh, periods in Lincolnshire, periods in Norfolk, um, in London, uh, in Germany, um, mm. moving jobs on average every two and a half years or so and moving schools with it until to my uh, secondary school age where I my dad and my mum kept moving around but uh, but my schooling was constant because I went to a boarding school and first job was what uh, polishing shoes or I don't know what 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 does a son, <laughs> what does son of a of a military person do for a first job do you did you what, get involved in any way what you mean like a casual labor type yeah, job yeah. um my, the holidays, okay the first you... job I had that I was paid for was printing, because this was one of the Lincolnshire phases, so rural Lincolnshire, there's a shitload of potatoes to be harvested. And uh, there was, I had a job where I got paid one pound per thousand potato sacks printing with a sort of stamp where you put it in the ink and then put it on the potato sack, printing the name of the type of potato on the sack. And... Uh, that was that was my Are you first an authority job. on potato? Well, we needn't go there. Um, 
so, so the Formula One thing, what happened next? How did you get involved? You went to Cambridge University and studied engineering. Engineering, yeah. And uh, I was doing a postgraduate year that I wasn't enjoying. I loved my undergraduate degree, but once that was over, I, I started doing a master's, didn't really like it that much, and thought I'd much rather get a job. Most of my friends were either had headed off into the city to work there or were planning to, and that left me very cold. And I had been, I'd been sponsored through university by Dunlop Aviation and uh, I'd spent my summer holidays not finding myself in India, but working in Coventry, learning how to draw, learning how to machine things, and having a really brilliant time, actually. And that sponsorship by that company left me utterly convinced that I wanted to be an engineer. But good to me though they were, I was more attracted to the engineering that was possible inside Formula One than the sort of traditional engineering that was that was possible in some of the other companies in the country and uh and I'd always been a fan of F1 and I just thought well I'm I'm an engineer I really like formula 1 I want to stay being an engineer perhaps if I'm really lucky they might take a look at me so I wrote a load of letters and luckily got got one reply one one reply from the Benetton. I got one from, reply from Benetton. I don't, not one reply. Was it really one reply? I got, no, I got two replies. I got one from McLaren saying, thanks, we've put it in, in our filing system. And then one from Benetton saying, why don't you come down for an interview? And it turned out that my application had arrived on their desk as the first of many people applying for a job that coincidentally they had advertised that week in autosport for a junior draftsman. And so my my letter, which was pitched nicely for such a task, but wholly by chance, was the first one to come across their bows. And uh, and I got lucky with that. And you got lucky. And so that was the sort of Tom Walkinshaw era, wasn't it? And, uh, um... That was, no, that was the John Barnard era. There was a, a short period uh, between Rory Byrne uh, where, and Pat Simmons where... Flavio had sort of invested in John Barnard. There was the factory was split across two sites, one up in Whitney, one down in Godalming near John Barnard's house. And I was hired into that. And then a year or so later, it became the Ross uh, Braun era with Pat Simmons and Rory Byrne and co coming back from exile to, to work under him. And did you know immediately that you'd made the right decision and, and you were happy in Formula One, and you, and you found the work interesting? Uh, it was brilliant right from the start, and it stayed brilliant all the way through. As a way of life, it's, it takes a lot from you, but it gives massively in return. It, you, you get to work with uh, strong characters who almost, to a person, are nice people. There are a few sharks kicking around, but most of the engineering community is extremely optimistic, fun, exciting, adventurous people who make your working life extremely enjoyable. And the challenges that are put in front of you are nearly always difficult, but, they, but they're normally doable in some, some form or another, and they, they never, ever dull. Who have been the biggest influences on you professionally? I guess I've been lucky to work for some splendid people along the way. From an engineering point of view, 
the biggest ones have been Bob Bell, who I worked with sort of alongside at Benetton and then worked for when he was my technical director when I came back to that same team, but when they were then Renault. Ross Braun, um, who I was lucky enough to work for during those glory years at Ferrari and also previously at Benetton, although he probably didn't know I was working for him back then. <laughs> but, uh, but by the time we got to Ferrari, I was playing a slightly more important role. Um, and his, his leadership style and uh, his calmness were, were things I definitely learned a lot from. Those are probably the two biggest engineering figures that I've, I've worked with. And what about your favourite era? Because you've sort of, you know, we've talked about LaRousse and the challenge of having a, you know, a group of 15, 20 people pulling things together. In terms of from a regulation point of view, what have you enjoyed the most? This is going to sound really boring, but I've enjoyed all of it. I mean, all of it, even, even years that were enduringly grim. You, you, there's still there's still plenty to recommend them as as life experiences but people often ask me oh what's your favorite car you know what was your favorite race and i think one of the abiding characteristics of motor racing is that everything that's happened is almost autumn you know almost overnight uninteresting what what matters is what's coming next and are you are you ready for the next race are you going to be ready for the next season is the group of people you're with building strength and moving in the right direction. The cars themselves, once they're not animated by a championship, they're just pretty lumps of titanium and plastic and rubber and Amazing. And you're sounding like a driver in, in your sort of outlook towards it. I always think that, I don't know, I, thought I was expecting a little bit more sentimentality, I suppose. Uh, you know, a car that you've maybe had particular success with or... Uh, I don't. I don't think of them in those terms. I don't. I don't. I'm hugely right. sentimental about the sport and the people I hmm. have been lucky enough to work alongside, and the and the sense of comradeship that being in a team brings you, and uh, and that that sense of camaraderie is something which has had peaks and troughs depending on how fortunate you were you were to be in a in a team that really understood it or or teams that perhaps sort of said the right things but didn't didn't live it and uh in that respect i've been in some pretty good places but this place is is truly remarkable in that regard this place mercedes mercedes yeah do you think the regulations now are too restrictive no i wouldn't say that particularly people sometimes i think look back at the sport and and pick out some big innovations you know you'll you'll hear people talking about the brabham fan car or the or the twin chassis cars of the past forward facing exhaust or the forward facing exhausts um you know there's there's any number of things that that you can pick out as big features and they say see there's no innovation in formula one but but if they were to come and live alongside us and see the way in which the team's the engineers and the teams and the teams find find lap time in the most unlikely of little holes 
you know, the, it's it's an unending work of invention and and skill. And in in many ways, the the sort of invention and skill that these rules force upon you are the is the invention and skill of the sort of prisoner of war escape artist who is constrained by all manner of appalling things that is trying to keep him keep him penned in but but the ingenuity is is what breaks free and and that ingenuity is is writ large across hundreds and hundreds of details in the car um, which add up to to a lot of lap time and so so I actually think the rules are are a way of almost bringing the best out of people to find the opportunity when there's seemingly none do you find it intellectually stimulating what you do because reason I'm asking that question is I read somewhere that you'd said you've never been as challenged um, academically anyway as you were when you were at Cambridge and Formula One hasn't had the same demands intellectually. Do you still feel uh, Well, there's two different words there, aren't there? There's intellectual and academically. Academic, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and there's no doubt that the environment of a Cambridge degree is academically quite challenging and uh, and they ask a lot of you uh, in that regard but the intellectual challenge of of being in a Formula One team is vastly richer than an academic than, than an undergraduate academic degree the the breadth of challenge both technical and human is so much richer than that it asks searching questions of you all the time and it and it asks them of you very often when you're you're on your knees with fatigue and one of the things that is is thrilling in its own way is when you're surrounded by hundreds of people who have who have given way more than they're contracted to give for month after month after month and you can see them there pallid and unwell looking sunken-eyed, greasy-haired, spotty, and yet the thing that they're doing together is breathtaking. And the way in a good team, despite that fatigue, people keep being nice to one another and keep their minds on the overall task and don't lose their temper and don't start throwing their toys out the pram. That really makes you feel part of something special when you have people who understand the bigger picture, even when they are utterly riven with with fatigue talk of being part of something special can you just shed some light on what it was like to to win everything with ferrari in the early noughties that was pretty good (laughs) (laughs) it was lovely and are there comparisons to be made with what you're going through now there are comparisons i'd say there's there's differences too First of all, it was it was extremely exciting for me because up until that point, I had had a, a factory-based existence. And my role at Ferrari was the first time I'd been exposed to the track. And being at the pointy end of, of a racing car team when you haven't previously opens your eyes quite wide. And there's the thrill and the immediacy of, of the hoopla attached to a, to a victory and the ups and downs that happen in a very intense way at a track and so that was that that emotional roller coaster was something i was experiencing for the first time there was also something pretty special about being in ferrari when they broke their drought that i think it'd been 27 years or something without a championship at the point where where michael did it in 2000 and when we got off the plane in bologna there were 
a thousand or so people waiting in the airport to greet us and not not friends and family they were there as well but there were there were just a huge chanting throng with a giant scuderia flag <laughs> and, and uh and it so it was it was quite a quite a thrill although people remember that as a period of utter dominance there were two seasons that were utterly dominating but there were also some pretty challenging ones where we had to really fight for it so that was that was great but with the benefit of hindsight i can also see that that those victories were there was a degree of asymmetry in the teams back then that ferrari was the biggest team the biggest budget and it wasn't that close either it had an utterly magnificent driver and the teams that we were beating off and and winning against in some ways were were not the same size of of endeavor that ferrari you know the sort of war machine that ferrari had put together um i think one of the things that makes the era that mercedes finds itself in and has prospered in more remarkable is that there are some real titans to beat the the, the three top teams they are all extremely professional extremely well funded extremely strong organizations and for anyone in that climate to to win they've done a very fine job and so for mercedes to do it a number of years on the trot it, it merits it merits a degree of recognition what about the guys you've worked for over the years i mean how much contact did you have with todd when you were at ferrari jean todd or was was ross very much the point of contact of course if you're one of the traveling community then uh each of the meetings that happens during the race weekend and you probably know that race weekends are, are punctuated by an enormous string of meetings before the session after the session before the next session after the next session and jean would be in the majority of those meetings so it's impossible not to be near jean a lot if you're part of the traveling community but that didn't mean that that he was regularly pulling me in, into his office saying hey james what do you think about this it was very clear to all of us who were at ferrari in that period that Jean was the team principal and that he worked very hard for us. He he put a big shell around the company that kept all of the extraneous noise that can sometimes drag Ferrari down, that just kept that away. That was, he just put a huge umbrella over the place. He was very decisive in acting on things to, to keep the team running smoothly. So if he could see that there was a friction in the team he would either intervene to put it right or if it was clear that a person was just a troublemaker then then he would pull them out of the fray and then they wouldn't be a troublemaker anymore because mm. they wouldn't be in the fray mm. so he was very decisive in that fashion he's also someone who you could be pretty sure if it was half nine at night and you were still working in the wind tunnel or whatever you could be pretty sure that he'd be around at some point that night and he would just wander around and ask you how you were going and it was you know a classic case of management by walking about rather than that he knew what wind tunnel guys were up to or anything but he knew he knew a lot of people's names he knew a lot about their their lives and uh, and would make a big effort to make sure that the team was rolling along nicely can we say the same about your your previous boss Flavio Briatore? 
Uh, Flav wasn't quite in that style of management, no. Flav sort of rather subbed that out to to people like Bob Bell and and Pat. Pat looked after the race team and Bob looked after, well, Bob basically ran the company from a factory side. Well, Flav, it's not to say that Flav was not important. He was he was hugely important to the arc of Benetton and then Renault, but he wasn't a sort of hands-on figure and certainly, certainly not the type of person who'd wander around talking to anyone. <laughs> And then when you went back to Ferrari um, in 2013, how different was the place to, where, to, the, to your previous stint at the team? It was pretty different because that shell that I described that Jean had erected around the Formula One team that made it feel like a racing car team, that had been depleted over the years. And uh, there was a lot more tugging of strings that were coming from outside of the race team that made made the job of the team more complex you know you it just made it more more pressured and more difficult and where decisions were not necessarily always taken at the right level in the company you know, by the by the level that understood the thing it was making the decision about so it it had the tendency to make the company react to short term pressure a bit more whereas it needs to a formula one team needs to have stability it needs to make calm decisions and it needs sometimes to hold its nerve even when things look bleak because because the sport is difficult and it's because it is so much easier to make things worse by intervening than make them better so actions to intervene need to be carefully calibrated and carefully measured and that requires a sort of steady hand on the tiller for a number of seasons and I think one of the interesting things looking at Ferrari now is that I think they sort of get it you see I think you see a a resolve in the team that we're up against this season they know that that they have they have some assets that that are going to grow into something strong if they can hold their nerve and do the right thing and they have a fast car and they have some extremely good people and it it just it's just a question of of keeping cool not panicking and things will come to them some wonderful insight from james so far but we're going to press pause on our chat for just a minute to give a mention to Harry's, the online razor company, which might just be able to transform your morning routine with their thoughtfully made shaving tools and well-rounded skincare for every man. And good news for Beyond the Grid listeners, Harry's are offering you the chance to get your hands on a trial set for just £3.95. All you have to do is go to harrys.com forward slash F1 podcast. These trial sets are fantastic and the perfect way to test out if Harry's is right for you. Just enter your details online and you'll get a neat little package delivered to your door with all you need to get going, including a weighted ergonomic handle ensuring maximum comfort and grip while you shave, and five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and a trimmer blade. Harry's also throw in a foaming shave gel and a handy little travel blade cover to protect your kit. All of that for £3.95. High-quality blades for half the price of other brands out there. Now, you know the drill by now. If you haven't already, then get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and you get your trial set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash F1 podcast. Right now, that's harrys.com forward slash 
F1 podcast. Now let's get back to James. When you've spent so much time at a rival, in your case, Ferrari, um, do you feel, you know so many of the people there, you know Mattia Bonotto, for example, very well. Um, do you kind of feel you, you can imagine quite accurately what's going on and, and how they're developing the car because you know the characters behind it so well? Does that help you here? I, I don't particularly try to second guess them in that way. The, the weird thing about being in F1 is that you can have extremely deep feelings of affection towards a place and people. I, mean, I have many, many, many friends in Ferrari and that, that affection can genuinely sit alongside a rabid desire to crush them into the ground. <laughs> and, and it's a strange thing. And they would do exactly the same to me, despite the fact that we've, you know, we've enjoyed many things together and I want nothing but good things to happen to them. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you've worked with some brilliant technical people, but you've also worked with some great drivers. And I just wanted to ask you, I mean... I know there are very few people in the pit lane who have worked with the list of great drivers that you've worked with. And I'm thinking, so looking at my list here, Lewis Hamilton, Michael Schumacher, Fernando Alonso, Kimi Räikkönen, and Sebastian Vettel. You've worked with them all. And what made each of them special? And can we start with Lewis? I'm, I'm not sure that I could give you a, a happy list of driver by driver what their defining specialness is. What is it about Lewis that impresses you? Well, first of all, they are all impressive people. Yeah, they're all, if you take the, the great sort of smudge of humanity, drivers are not in the middle. They're, they're way off in the far distance somewhere at one extreme end of the bell curve of humans. They are not normal in, in their attitude to life and their, their willingness to, to give themselves to a very hard task that requires minute level of of detailed attention and and caring about winning way beyond what someone who thinks they're competitive cares. So they're all unusual people, but sort of take that as a given. That's there for all of them. So the things that the thing that has both surprised me. So one one thing I was expecting when I came to Mercedes was I was expecting to find a fast driver in Lewis because you've only got to look at his stats to know that he he didn't get them by accident. He is insanely fast. And interestingly, for someone who is not in the first flush of youth now in driving terms, he's still a pole position machine, which that doesn't tend to be as true as a driver uh, gets a few seasons under his belt. And Lewis is, is blisteringly quick in qualifying. So I was expecting to be impressed by that, and boy, am I. I think the other thing that I was expecting to be impressed by but, but have come to appreciate more is, is just how, how cleverly he races a car and how cleanly he races a car. He makes other people make mistakes by, by placing his car in a place on the road where they have no choice except to hit him or to back down or to make a mistake while he doesn't you know he just places a car in in a place on the road immaculately but cleanly is a case in point Vettel in Bahrain a more perfect example in my opinion would be Monza last year 
where going into Sebastian again, Sebastian yeah. again, Lewis just put his car on the road, you know, not in a way that it was easy for Lewis to do, but just put his car on the road in a place where it left, it left Sebastian with nowhere to go. And, uh, and I just thought that was, that was magnificent and, and, you know, utterly clean. There was nothing about that. It didn't, it wasn't like he didn't leave room or anything like that. It just, it just, just brilliant driving. What's he like as a, as a bloke? Well, I was he... going to say that those are the things I was sort of expecting, but when I see it for real, it's like, okay, I was expecting it, but it's more so. It's, it's more and it's better. The thing I utterly was not expecting was the Lewis as a bloke part of it because I'd had no interaction with him prior to coming to the team. And I sort of could see the, that he was much more of a superstar driver than the rest of the grid with a much bigger public image, one which he, to some degree, cultivated via Twitter and stuff like that. And I was, I was expecting to find someone who had a much more overpowering ego than the, than the person I found and have rather enjoyed finding someone who is pretty appealing as a, as a character. Yeah, not, not like sort of Mother Teresa or anything, but, far from it, but, but a person who... Whose, whose values are, are, and behaviours are, are, are ones that I think most people would enjoy being alongside. And do you think you only see that inside the team? Do you think the public image is different? I think we're, we're deeply fortunate to spend enough time with you know, anyone who works at a track with the drivers is going to spend enough time with them that they're going to get beyond the sort of fluff of a press conference or... The, the sort of cliches that tend to get mouthed from weekend to weekend because the type of question that gets asked is quite repetitive and formulaic. And so the answers tend to be repetitive and formulaic as well. If you spend enough time with a person in the type of environment we're in, you get past that and you see the person beneath. But I mean, I, I've told this story before, but my introduction to Lewis was unusual to say the least. And, uh, but it was revealing about him in a way that has had an important bearing on our his and my relationship since. So my my first encounter with him as an employee of Mercedes was in the first winter test of 2017. And we'd been introduced in the morning, shaken hands, and uh, made the sort of looking forward to working with you type noises. And then he'd gone off to do his thing. I'd gone off to do mine. And we didn't we didn't bump into each other until mid-morning of that day where he had clambered out the car because we were doing something to it and I was stood in the garage looking at some telemetry and he walked over me, to me, I think just to be friendly. The run before, he'd been going around the track and he'd had quite a big moment in turn four where the back had come loose and he'd kept his foot down and caught it and carried on. And he came up to me and said, hey, did you see did you see that moment in turn four? And I was thinking, well, I sort of know the form here. You know, drivers, are, drivers like to be told how cool and brave they are. And they are quite cool and brave in many ways. You know, they do do things that the rest of us would probably want a, a good old sit down afterwards. And they, they put it straight away to the back of the head and they push on. So I, I sort of know the deal that you, you, you need to say, yeah, that was massive. Um, 
wow. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but equally, I didn't, want, I didn't want my first interaction with Lewis to be a sort of fawning one. And so I rather unwisely said, yeah, I did see it. But the thing that, the thing that always amazes me about you fuckers is that you come back for more of it the next lap. And in my mind, that was a sort of way of acknowledging in an indirect way that they are unusual people, that they do a, da a dangerous thing, that they immediately put it out of their head and they come back around and do it more. But I, I wanted to say it in a way that didn't say like, oh, you're so cool. But it was like, there's something a bit wrong with you guys. That was what was going on in my head. But Lewis's face just... Was he on the same page or not? No, not at all. He just like, his face just fell. He looked sort of very surprised at me, turned on his heel and sort of walked off in the opposite direction. And I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> he's not quite getting me. Um, and a little bit later in the day, well, towards that evening, Toto came up to me and said, ah, yeah, uh, James, Lewis said you were pretty rude to him earlier. And I knew what he was talking about, um, but I also knew I hadn't been rude. I might have been ill-judged, but I wasn't rude. I make ill judgments. And... And I said, okay, I know what that was. I wasn't trying to be rude. I'll put it right. Don't worry. I'll go and have a chat with him. We didn't have an opportunity to talk to each other for the, for the next day or so. And the first time we did come across each other was back in the factory. And he and I sort of bumped into each other and, I, and we sort of said, should we go downstairs for a coffee down in the, in the canteen? Bit of an atmosphere or not? Um, it was clear that both of us wanted to just... Clear the deal air. with this because yeah. Toto Toto absolutely would have said, Lewis, there's no harm in him. Don't he's just got a potty mouth. You, do, you don't need to worry about that. Um, and so it was it was it was just necessary to to put it straight, not that there was going to be a row. And it was an opportunity to sit in a relaxed way. So we go sit downstairs, and I I sort of explained where I was coming from, um, and and said, but don't worry, you know, I won't do it again and he said no oh, no no don't don't fret you know carry on being you I just it was just a weird thing to have as the first thing that someone ever said to you and I thought yeah it probably was but uh but what what then surprised me and this is this is really the part of the story that is is much you know is properly revealing of Lewis is that he he said to me look I haven't had a chance to say until now but I just want to say how sorry I was about your wife who had sadly died um, six or eight months earlier. And, and he said, I, you know, I'm truly, truly sorry. That's a terrible thing. And that completely caught me by surprise in, in a very welcome way because a, a death of anyone you love is, is a massive thing. And it, it runs around your head. It still runs my, around my head today. I, there will not be 10 minutes of my life where I haven't thought of Becca since then. And it runs around your, ha your head continually. And it's a lonely sort of world where you're thinking about this pain and very few other people even remember that it happened, still less have the courage to acknowledge it and say it because there's a lot of difficulty and embarrassment around am I going to upset the person is it is it wrong is it right um but it's it's lovely when someone does have the courage to do that because it's an acknowledgement of a loss that matters to you more than anything in the world and it's a less lonely world when someone does acknowledge that so and, I, and it's certainly not what you expect from a driver so it caught me by surprise and I said no thank you and he he sort of said I don't know if it's something you 
want to talk about or not, but I'm, I just needed to say it. And I told him what I just told you about the fact that it's lovely when people do. And, and he, he took the conversation on a little bit and said, I hope that you find some way of learning to live with it. And I hope that in, in good time, you'll, you'll eventually find happiness again in the future, which is a lovely thing to say. And absolutely, again, not, not where I was expecting to be on a Monday morning in a canteen in a Formula One team talking to a Formula One driver who are not generally the most sensitive of souls. I was deeply grateful to it, but I was also aware that, that probably ought to find a way to, to bring it to a, a close in a grateful sort of way. And I said, well, I, I would dearly hope so too, but I, you know, that, that happy future that you set out um, that would require me to actually start talking to a girl, and I'm pretty rubbish at that. And uh, and he he looked at me and he smiled and he went, well, maybe just don't call them fuckers. <laughs> so, so that Uncle Lewis, yeah, that was and and you know that was that was sort of not yeah. day naught of our relationship, but it was it was at the start, and it mattered a lot to me. And I think that just in a in a small way that shows you. You know, there's no cameras, there's no microphones, there's no one to show off to. That's just him being considerate and and being emotionally literate in a way that people probably would not have anticipated. And it certainly enabled me to connect with him in this in the months and years since. And and one thing that I'm grateful for. Would you say that your relationship has evolved to such a a point where you are a friend of Lewis Hamilton, or is it purely professional? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't claim that at all. I I hope that I certainly would wish him a good day and and good things in his in his life, and I hope he would wish the same of me. But but it's a professional relationship. I think the the race engineer who works with him day in day out is a is a closer bond than than a technical director. But I think he and I we have a trust that means that when he comes and says that this I'm hurting here this this bit of the car needs to change and if I say I've heard you believe me we're working on it he will know that I mean it that it will happen mm. and 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 that that things will change in the direction that that is he's he's talking about and and similarly I I'm pretty sure that were I ever to need to have to say to him Lewis this is hurting the team can you please do x y or z he would hear me out and act act in a way that was the right one. James, what about other drivers? Michael Schumacher. People say he was a a very there was a very much a human side to him. I think Sabine Kem saying that he was very good at remembering people's birthdays in the team and and yeah, uh, is, is it a common trait that we're starting to see across? No, because drivers are not all like that by any means. I. I would say that... Are good ones all like that? Uh, no, not even the good ones. <laughs> um, but um, Michael was certainly someone who properly understood the power of a team hmm. and understood that, that acting in a way to, to build a team spirit and an atmosphere around his car was a way to get the best people giving their best. I don't know how calculated it was or because it always felt very natural after every race he would you know win lose or draw he would come and talk 
but if we won, he would, you know, he he would share his pleasure in the win with you personally in a way that made you feel that you'd been part of it. And that makes you feel very good and and makes you feel like the thing you're doing is is much bigger than it actually is. And, do, could and, he do things in a racing car that very you've seen very few others do? Certainly. Can you think of any particular moments? Um, he was an extremely strong race driver, so he was fit in an era where not everyone was fit and able to thrash out qualifying-style laps for a whole race because back in the days of refueling and on tyres that were pretty robust, he, he could, you know, that was what was asked of, of a driver and he could, he could do that and get out the car without hardly a speed of sweat on him. That level of attention was, I think, unusual. Um, he's also where a lot of drivers don't particularly like testing. You know, Lewis in particular is famous for hating it. Why does Lewis hate testing so much? Can't he see that the no, work no, he puts in... No, intellectually, he utterly understands it's, it's important, which is why he does it. And he doesn't do it with ill grace. He does it properly. He just knows that it's like the hard yards necessary to to do the thing that he loves doing, which is racing. Whereas I think, like Michael, loved training, loves you know he loved it, and he he liked being at a test track with the team. He would be pushing the team for testing opportunities at every opportunity. I remember one particular year we're in Monaco, done Thursday. And he, he thought, I, I want some start practice. And at the time, you were allowed a certain number of kilometers to shake down the car during a race weekend or before a race weekend. So he helicoptered himself back to Fiorano, spent Friday doing start practice, and then back, wow. back to the track on the, on the Saturday. Yeah. 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 Um, and he would routinely finish each season as the driver who had spent the most kilometers in the car. This is a person who by then had got championships coming out of his ears mm. and yet still finding the enthusiasm to do that. And, it, and, I, and I think genuinely because he loved it, you know, the, the discipline and environment of being a Formula One driver, including all that testing, was just a lifestyle that, that was right up his alley. And that's something that's coming across quite strongly in this conversation is that it's a lifestyle that is right up your alley as well. Is that... Well, it's, it's certainly been very good to me. <laughs> yeah, it's been I mean, very good to me. Um, the, the things, there's many, many things to love about it. If I, if I compare myself to my brothers and sisters and look at the, the careers of the working world they have inhabited, my working world has got a lot going for it. Number one thing is the utter, utter clarity of what we're trying to do. Is no, you know, most companies, I think they have a, a range of competing priorities that they are, they're trying to look after, you know, increase sales, look after profits, you know, look after shareholders, whatever. We're just trying to win. And we're trying to make the fastest car with the best operations uh, so that we can win. And everybody from top to bottom in the team, whether they're on the technical side or the commercial side or the operations side, all those people completely get what we're trying to do. And that gives a racing team a sort of unity of purpose that makes, doesn't make you feel like you're in a company. You know, it's called a racing team because it feels like you're a team. And I love that, that sense of being in a team of people. And, it, and 
I love it the most of all when when we do something that's really difficult, where the outcome is very far from certain, and yet somehow we prevail because the wave of emotion that runs through a team that has really given everything, you know, and has punished themselves physically, have have skirted a work-life balance at home that is just barely manageable to try and play their part here in this company. When you achieve it, it makes you swell fit to burst with, with the pleasure of it and the pride and the and just the sheer buzz of of having been part of that. Are it's, you a very a, competitive person? I, uh, I was, well, I, I depends you who you, if depends I was to you take you on on the squash court, would it be absolute life and life and death to you to not beat in sport. me? Just to, to no, no, hammer not, me, ground. Not, not in physical sport. I'm a no. fairly incompetent sportsman, so I just take for granted I'm going to get beaten by <laughs> whoever <laughs> takes me on. I quite liked rugby as a as a schoolboy and at university, but that's more that I like running around and but bashing into people. You're such a modest people. man. You're now going to tell me that you got a blue in rugby or something? No, I certainly oh, didn't. Okay, no, right. I was lame. Okay. Um, I played for my college team, but uh, but no, nothing okay. like that. So, do but, you have an outlet for that competitive spirit away from? racing away from Formula One? Well, I used to do competition aerobatics. That was that was the main thing I did outside of work that was competitive. But with success? With modicum of success, yeah. But the uh, compared with the competitiveness of my working environment, everything pales into insignificance. So so You're such a good advert for for this team and for what you do. Um any of your children likely to follow you into uh, do they have a sort of engineering bent do they oh they're quite artistic actually aren't they uh no my my children definitely won't be following me into formula one um becca was a was a singer she was a professional singer and my children definitely have a lot of her in them all of them have a, a degree of the performer in them that is absent in me and while there's, there's aspects of my personality they share. They're, they're certainly none of them engineers. My, my daughter studied languages at university and uh, is very much on the humanities side of, of the academic spectrum and has my wife's wonderful emotional literacy, um, something which I sort of picked up by association with my wife but, but haven't, haven't got anything like her breathtaking skill at. My middle child, Matthew, is a, studies geology and he's just finishing a master's in geology at the moment, hoping to do a PhD in it and absolutely loving it. And I guess one of the things that I do see that he's taken from Becca and from me is that attacking whatever he's got in front of him with enthusiasm and taking joy from it is clearly evident. And so that's lovely to see with him. And with... Um, with Jonathan, my youngest, he has just, just um, been accepted to go and study drama at Rose Bruford Drama College and uh, and couldn't be happier for him. I mean, three high flyers. Well, they're, they're all three very different, um, but they're, I'm certainly massively proud of them. They're, they're well, lovely. On the language front, after stints at Renault and, and um, Ferrari and now at Mercedes, I, I assume... You can speak certainly Italian, am I right? 
Uh, only Italian. Only Italian. <laughs> <laughs> so, so German and French hasn't quite made. You quite no, made it I, I'm, I'm very, I'm definitely not a talented linguist. <laughs> but one of the real fun things about working in Italy that first time round was we were all there. Becca, my kids, uh, local schools, uh, living in quite a rural part of Italy, and me working in a part of the team in the aero department that was very much not dominated by English folk. And so learning Italian was both a necessity and a complete thrill because I'd gone through school adequate at things like English and geography and stuff like that, but really, really pretty good at, at science-y type things and had quite early on in my life written off languages as, as an utter irrelevance um, and something I couldn't do. And so to find myself later in life actually living and working in Italy and where I very quickly learned that it was very far from an irrelevance, but also finding that with enough necessity that, that it was something I could do. And learning Italian was, even to the sort of crappy level I got to, was really, really pleasurable. And the fact that from time to time someone from Rayuno will spring a microphone on me live at a race and start asking me in Italian a bunch of stuff and and having to reply on live TV in Italian that gives me a buzz and makes and and makes me feel some pleasure and and certainly living and working in a different culture was was a brilliant mm. experience for both Becca and for me the whole family and look we can't we've been talking about drivers that's not we can't talk about drivers and not talk about Valtteri um would you agree that he's upped his game? I think it's. Year? I think that there's. I mean, you could just look at the results, and you can say that he is performing at an extremely high level. I mean, he's one point ahead of Lewis, and Lewis is no slouch. But I think it's also worth remembering Valtteri was pretty unlucky by this stage of last season. He should have won Baku. He could so easily have won in China this time last year. And so Valtteri is, is a pretty bloody good driver. What we've got to see is whether that fortune will keep favouring him and not rob him of points as it did last year and, and whether, whether he's going to keep this strong performance as we, as we head into some of the tracks that, that were more bugbearish to him last year. But the, the determination that he has this year is extremely evident and uh and, and different to previous uh i think just just a degree of focus on the areas of weakness that he had last year so you know he's he's had a number of poles off of lewis even in previous seasons um but on race pace he had floundered a little at certain races last year and i think he has worked very hard with his race engineer to understand where that deficit was coming from and to to try to moderate his driving mod, moderate his driving style to to not damage the tires in the way that that he had done on occasions last year um 2021 yeah what do you want to see from a technical point of view that's a very difficult question i think the objectives that liberty have so clearly set out they are things that anyone who loves this sport would want to see so the objective of a healthy grid 
with teams that are putting good equipment on the road, the best drivers, where where the racing is close, where overtaking is a feature of the sport, where the spectacle is one that you tune in on a Sunday to watch because you're you're looking forward to the wow, this is going to be great experience that's in front of you. All of that is stuff that that we can all get behind. It's a complicated sport with many, many, many stakeholders and many interests to to keep looked after. So James, finally, you're living you're living life at a, a fast pace. How long are you gonna continue in Formula One? I mean, is it something you're going to do forever or is uh, it, a bit like Lewis as, you know the last few years we've seen Lewis take interests outside of Formula One with his clothing and everything else he's got going on are you starting to have interests outside of Formula One that could eventually pull you away full-time well I'm not sure that I'm living life at a fast pace <laughs> I've been doing this for how long since 91 so 28 happy exciting years and these years, the years where I've been blessed to be a technical director have been the most interesting of all and have felt like the, the years of greatest privilege. There's, there's some sense I feel that there are only 10 technical director slots and the longer that an old git holds onto that post, the less time there is for someone younger to enjoy the fun I've had. But equally, the fun is so massive, you don't want to say goodbye to it any earlier than you have to. A lot of people would say you're currently the preeminent technical mind in Formula One. How does that make you feel? That would make me cringe, as we described <laughs> earlier on, because the, because there are hundreds of people just the other side of the wall in the room we're talking in who would have equal claim on that with me, and in many, many cases, a greater claim, because there are a huge number of really brilliant people in this team alone. And then team by team by team down through the paddock, you see people with similar education, with similar you know, brain power and, and skill. So the concept of a preeminent mind is just such nonsense. You know, we all have a certain skill set to bring. And I've been lucky through the sort of arc of my career to be exposed to a bunch of stuff that sort of left me more or less capable of doing the job I currently do. But the job I currently do is just one cog in a machine that's a thousand people strong. And it's us together, us together that has created this team, a team that I've been lucky enough to join only in the last two and a half seasons. And, uh, and so the idea of a preeminent mind just makes my toes curl. You are incredibly modest, but what is your biggest strength as an engineer then? Uh, probably communicating and having a slight ability to get people to sort of follow in a direction that that we've deemed to be a good one. We being, the, you know, a group of decision makers. So I'm, I hope, adequately persuasive. I'm relatively articulate. I'm not bad at standing up and speaking to people. I'm pretty good at writing stuff. These are all quite soft skills, you'll note, because because pretty much to a, to a person, the engineering community is good at engineering. But as you become more of an engineering leader and less of an engineering doer, then you need to be adept at sort of lining people up behind a, a challenge. And, and so 
that's where communication skills and some of the softer skills come to the fore. So probably probably more there than than that I'm any good at designing wings or gearboxes or any of the billion challenges that the team faces technically. Well, good luck with that. Thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Inspiring stuff, wasn't it? James is one of the best communicators in F1 and to hear him talk is a bit like listening to a life coach. You come away with ideas about what you can do better in your world, irrespective of the topic. Another thing that makes James different to many of the technical bods in the pit lane is that he's experienced both ends of the engineering spectrum. He's worked for a tiny outfit like LaRousse when getting the car finished was a struggle and he's worked for the powerhouses of Ferrari and Mercedes. His is a racing book that I'd want to read should he ever write one. Thanks for being so open, James. I loved our chat and hope you did too. And thanks too to Mercedes for being so accommodating. Well, that's it for another week. But as ever, we'll be back in just seven sleeps with another superstar from the world of F1. In the meantime, as you're waiting for that episode to drop, why not subscribe to Beyond the Grid if you haven't already? We're on all of your favorite podcast apps, including Apple and Spotify. And while you're at it, why not rate us? You know you want to. Talking of rating us, this is our last opportunity to ask for your vote ahead of the British Podcast Awards. We've been nominated for two gongs, so if you like what we do, we'd love your vote. Please visit britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote to register your vote. And thanks for your messages about last week's show with Damon Hill. There's a lot of love out there for the 1996 world champion, but this message from Thermal caught my eye. Thank you for another amazing podcast, writes Thermal. I never was a big fan of Damon as a driver because I didn't know much about him. But what a nice and humble guy he is shows you how much a simple podcast can make a difference. Well, indeed it does. Thanks, Thermal. And please keep your feedback coming. We love it. Use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid and you can tweet me at TomClarksonF1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.